When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Professor Ethan Mark about his book, Japan's Occupation of Java in the Second World War, a Transnational History, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2018. Professor Mark is a senior university lecturer in modern Japanese history at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He specializes in modern Japanese history with a particular expertise in Japanese imperialism and the social and cultural history of the 1920s to the 1940s. He's also a scholar of modern Indonesia. So welcome to the podcast today, Ethan. Thank you very much. I'm really excited and happy to be here. It's great to speak with you today. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up, and how did you become a historian of modern Japan and Indonesia? Okay, thank you. Um, uh, well, I'm, uh, as you might notice from my accent, I'm uh, actually American uh, originally. Um, I've been living in Holland, for the Netherlands, for quite a while, um, but uh, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, my father was actually a uh, pr- professor at Princeton, first generation uh, professor. Um, I, I often mention that to, not, so I, want, I, I don't want to give the impression that I come from a long line of professors. Um, my father taught uh, architecture and engineering at Princeton. He was inter- very much interested in history, actually. He started off as an engineer, and then he got more and more interested in, um, in, in history uh, and the history of, uh, of uh, um, buildings in the, in the uh, Middle Ages, uh, cathedrals. Um, and I just mentioned that in case anybody's interested. But um, so I grew up in Princeton. Uh, I grew up in a family that was very um, interested in history uh, and I studied as undergraduate. I studied uh, Japanese at the University of California, Berkeley. I was very eager to get away from Princeton and to and to uh, to go somewhere else. Um, and uh, in California, I um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study. Um, and uh, my my older brother had actually 
just finished studying at university and he uh, recommended to me, he said, well, if you don't know what to study, maybe you can do uh, some exotic foreign language. You like languages anyway, maybe you can, at least you'll have something to show for your uh, bachelor. Um, so I started studying Japanese more or less on a lark. Um, and I really, really liked it, really enjoyed the language. And I ended up going to Japan for a year um, as an exchange student. And I was actually, I, I, it's a long story. My, my uh, experience with Japan wasn't always positive, um, but um, I uh, remained really interested in, um, in history. Um, I was always interested also in the relationship between uh, the first world, uh, what we call, uh, you know, what we used to call at least the first world and the third world, uh, the north and the south nowadays. Um, I grew up um, in, um, in, the, uh, in the 1970s um, and I um, was a witness to, uh, to the Vietnam War uh, to some extent as, as, a very, as a young child. Um, and I had an older brother who was quite politicized, who, um, uh, who was very active and sort of attuned me to what was going on in Vietnam. Um, and I think that that sort of stayed with me. And so that when I even I remained very busy with Japan, but I was always also interested in Japan's relations with the rest of the world and kind of where Japan fits in the, in the global picture. Um, so I've never really been in that sense, like somebody who's sort of fascinating fascinated with Japan in a romantic sense. Uh, I was more interested in it, um, in some ways, to the, the ways in which Japan defies the stereotypes um, and defies this kind of, to one, for one thing, the, the, the expectation and notion that the Japanese are, are somehow uh, different from us. Um, this kind of cliche or fetishization of Japan is quite common. Of course, it's very popular as a, as a tourist uh, attraction. Uh, kind of a commodified uh, view of Japan as exotic and oriental. And that, that's something that always kind of uh, I wasn't comfortable with. Uh, and then when I got out of, uh, when I finished The Bachelor, I started um, actually, I, I'd started doing some jobs that were Japan related. I worked as a tour guide for a while in, um, in California. And I moved back to the East Coast and I lived in New York and I worked as a journalist uh, actually for the Yomiuri newspaper in New York. Um, but not for the for the Yomiuri that was published in Japan, but actually for there was a, a, a special edition of the Yomiuri that was for the expat Japanese living in the United States at the time. Um, and this is a Japanese language newspaper for Japanese living there. And what I ended up doing there was writing uh, articles about uh, U.S. news and American uh, developments in the United States for Japanese uh, audience, local Japanese audience in the U.S. And. In that period that I was living there in New York, I also met a person who would eventually become my wife. And uh, that person happened to be someone from the Netherlands who, whose father uh, was Indonesian uh, and her mother is Dutch uh, originally. My, my wife's family story is quite unusual and I think kind of fascinating. Her, her father uh, grew up in Indonesia, uh, in Java. Uh, he was a relatively high status uh, person who you know, was at least high enough status to enjoy a Dutch language education, uh, which was quite a rarity, actually, in Indonesia, um, in, in, in the colonial Netherlands Indies, I should say. And um, he was a nationalist who, who uh, was in his um, he was in his teenage years during the war. And then uh, after the after the war, after the Japanese occupation ended, he fought against the Dutch. He joined the the, the revolutionary 
Indonesian struggle for independence against the Dutch. After that, after the war was over and independence was achieved, he came to the Netherlands uh, to study. And he, he uh, came here on an Indonesian government scholarship. He was very uh, um, a patriotic Indonesian. He was very pro-Sukarno. And he came here and happened to meet a Dutch woman um, who was from a relatively progressive uh, background who was critical of, of uh, she came from a socialist family and she was critical of the, the kind of the establishment, uh, at least to the point that she felt quite sympathetic towards Indonesians and was interested in them. And the two of them fell in love. And so uh, my wife's father and mother moved back to Indonesia. The mother got Indonesian citizenship. And, uh, and then they had their children in Indonesia. And then in the 1970s, they moved back to the Netherlands um, and that's a whole story in itself. But in any case, my wife grew up largely in the Netherlands, but with, still with a quite strong um, Indonesian uh, uh, identification, you know, from a family that considered itself Indonesian. So she's quite, uh, you know, bicultural. The family's quite bicultural, and um, and that was just a, a coincidence that I happened to meet her in New York. And uh, it was at that time, I, as I said, I already had this kind of interest in Japan and the South, uh, the North and the South. Um, and from that point onwards, I developed more and more of an interest in Indonesia and decided to devote my PhD uh, research to that uh, topic. And it, it seemed kind of logical um, to look at the Japanese occupation period as the period of the most kind of intensive interaction between uh, Japan and Indonesia historically, a period that has been covered a lot. I, at one point, even in my early uh, in my early graduate school uh, years, I, I, or in the period before I went off and started doing research, I even received a, a letter from one Japanese scholar that said that the period had already been studied quite enough, and there wasn't necessarily much more to say about it. Um, I had I was a bit discouraged. Uh, my supervisor at the time, Carol Gluck, uh, encouraged me. Um, she said, uh, let's, let's keep this letter for later, um, as, as a kind of a, uh, a memento, <laughs> um, uh, because there is obviously there's, there was a lot more to tell. And I guess that's a good, maybe a good segue, um, into the, into what the book is about. Sure. Thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you for sharing your unique story to becoming a scholar of Japan and Indonesia. And I'm very happy for the field of Japanese studies that you had all of these experiences that led you to writing this book. Um, so um, I think you've already partly answered what was going to be my next question. Um, but your book, uh, Japan's Occupation of Java and the Second World War, is a deeply fascinating and compelling study of the encounter between these two non-Western societies, one as a colonizer and the colonized. Um, so if you have anything further to add, uh, could you tell us how you came to write this book and what you see as its major arguments and contributions? Well, thank you. Um, well, uh, I, uh, as I said, I, I was fascinated by this period of history. It is a dark period. I actually remembered speaking to uh, Professor John Dower, who you've probably heard of at, at an early point also in my graduate career and told him what I was interested in doing my PhD on. And he said, you know, this is a very dark period and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough history to tell. And that's true. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I was made it made sure on the, on the first you know, page or two of my book to to immediately emphasize um, the disaster 
the the uh, the, the disaster that uh, that Japan's occupation was for Indonesia for Java. You know, in the end, millions of people died. There was a lot of obviously a lot of suffering. It was uh, a period that people remembered very negatively, and not surprisingly. People remembered starving. They remembered, uh, you know, my, my father-in-law was one of the first people I talked to about it. And he remembered the Japanese being arrogant um, and, you know, uh, being being colonial. Um, and Indonesians remembered more generally uh, starvation. They remembered being exploited. They remembered um, uh, having shortages, dramatic shortages of, of the most basic uh, foodstuffs and clothing and things like this. So the Japanese had promised uh, something, you know, uh, promised that they came in as liberators. This is the, the reputation that they, they have, you know, as, as kind of tricksters, as, as people who had promised something that they never could deliver. And it was kind of, abs- it looked absurd um, that, they had, that they had done this. And of course, it was known that Indonesians and people in Southeast Asia had welcomed the Japanese at the beginning. But uh, the, the impression I had at first was that, that, that things turned very negative very quickly. And that maybe this was just going to be kind of a bleak, uh, sort of one-dimensional story. Um, but as I said, because of my family connection, uh, I'd studied Indonesian um, in, in the, it, while in my years at grad school, I had already studied Japanese uh, and, and I was fairly fluent in Japanese before I started graduate school. So that was an advantage because then I, I had the room to learn the, the Indonesian language on top of that. Um, so I was, I was sort of, in some ways, I was already, already kind of committed to the project. And so at a certain point, I can remember when I started looking at primary documents, that was when I sort of started to realize that there seemed to be a gap between the kind of black and white, uh, the way that the war was remembered. Also, by the way, on the Japanese side, because if you read um, a Japanese accounts uh, uh, about this period in, in Indonesia, or about or about the war more generally, they tend to divide. Uh, at least conventional accounts have tended to divide, kind of starkly, between those accounts that are emphasizing uh, the, the the terrible things that Japan did, and rightly so, and the disaster that Japan visited upon Asia, uh, the disaster of the war, uh, and the war is a kind of a, a tragic, you know, a, a, a tragic story. Um, and then on the other side, of course, I knew that there were Japanese revisionists who were um, were emphasizing the positives, who said Japan had kind of had a raw deal um, in terms of uh, its the way that history was narrated, and it was a it was a victor's justice and and a, and a kind of a history dominated by the winners, and therefore that Japan's noble mission of going to liberate Asians um, had been forgotten and and kind of uh, ignored or dismissed. Um, and so I, I, I ran into these uh, Japanese, uh, also Japanese revisionists, um, early in the early stages of my research too, I, and I read uh, their accounts. And it was um, so I, I ran into a lot of black and white, um, and not certainly not a lot of positive uh, reflection on the Japanese period from the Indonesian side, which is quite understandable. Uh, and the thing that really I think kind of changed my perspective and and made me think twice uh, about what kind of story this was and what kind of story I wanted to tell. I remember sitting in, I was at Columbia University. That's where I did my, my uh, master and PhD. Uh, and it, there were some, uh, we had in the Columbia collection, there were some con- collections of documents uh, in Japanese, uh, which were 
kind of, it seemed like propaganda materials that were released by a, I forgot about the, the name. I think it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it appears in the first uh, first pages of my book. I think it might in the preface. I now forget. Um, but uh, I mean, the specific name of the of the source of it. But there was uh, an account there. Uh, this was made by a kind of a think tank that was that was interested in the south the southern Asian regions, and the Japanese sponsored a lot of research at that time, obviously on the, on the on the Nampo, the southern regions. Um, with an aim, of course, the eventual colonization, and they wanted to know more about the area. So there were all kinds of uh, uh, documents there collected, kind of yellowed old uh, documents, forgotten documents from a, from a Japanese uh, uh, project that had turned out to be, of course, a, a miserable failure. What, what happened was I, I started reading um, the um, narrative from the, or, or the kinds of um, propaganda that Japanese uh, cultural actors of those who had, had turned out that these were uh, men who had been uh, drafted into military service or rather drafted to serve as propagandists. They were technically civilians in the military service. Um, they produced propaganda. And, and what struck me, this is for Japanese consumption, what I was reading, right? It was in Japanese and it was fascinating. Uh, it was, um, it, it uh, was telling a story of, Western domination of Asia in terms that were quite, uh, I found quite on, on target. Uh, it talked about exploitation. They talked about capitalism. They talked about um, colonialism as a kind of a, a, a system which had devastated Asia. Uh, and that Japan had a responsibility towards its Asian brethren to liberate them from this Western oppression um, and I, I don't know exactly what I had expected, but I think it was more along the lines of, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the great Japanese nation and, and the emperor, uh, you know, that, that makes us distinctive in this kind of more fascist, uh, typically Japanese imperialist fascist kind of rhetoric. Um, and what I, what I found instead was rhetoric that was quite sophisticated um, and quite radical even, uh, and, and certainly in many ways kind of progressive sounding. And and then I imagined what what did this kind of rhetoric, where did it come from? But also what would the impact of that kind of rhetoric have been on Indonesians? And I juxtaposed it against what kind of situation the in, in people in Indonesia had been living under, under the under Dutch colonialism, a system that had been very oppressive, that had been repressive against Indonesian nationalism, that had even exiled Indonesian nationalist leaders, uh, Sukarno and Hatta. Uh, and um what, what would the what would the the, the impact be of of a, of a Japanese rhetoric that was so uh, you know sort of kind of sophisticated in its critique of of not just the West as an abstract but really Western exploitation Western racism Western colonialism Western capitalism and of course there's a catch to all of this right um, which is that the critique of imperialism which was quite a, as I said quite a sophisticated critique that the Japanese were uh, were, were propagating had a, an escape hatch in it, which was that the Japanese are not like this. The Japanese are not imperialists in this sense. The Japanese are imperialists in the sense they have an emperor, but they are naturally cut from a different cloth. They are brotherly. Um, they are uh, uh, they are you know interested in uh, peace and harmony. Uh, they are interested in developing Asia instead of uh, ruining it. Um, so 
there, there was always there's always a um, a, a uh, an exceptional kind of an, an escape clause, a kind of a, a an exception made for the Japanese as imperialists. And of course, that uh, I knew that that was false. Um, that was not that uh, difficult to to know. Um, just knowing anything about, for example, the the experience of Japan in China in the 1930s, um, it's it's pretty hard to. Uh, you know, to, to take that seriously, the idea that the Japanese are somehow different from uh, from the Western imperialists. On the other hand, the Indonesians had, had not had much experience with Japan, uh, and they'd had a lot of experience with the Dutch. And uh, it was at that moment, I think, at the first, my first sort of contact in the, with the, the primary documents in the archives, I, I said to myself, okay, I know this is propaganda, but number one, this is really, you know, this is fascinating propaganda. It's much more sophisticated um, than I thought. It's 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 full of contradictions, of course, but there's def- definitely something to it which was deeper, more profound, more stirring um, than than my impression of, of how Japanese propaganda worked or, and what it was. And and then of course the other thing that I found equally fascinating was that it was in Japanese for a Japanese audience, so that there was this notion we have this kind of prior notion of the Japanese as tricksters, as Japanese as um, you know, telling lies to people in Asia when their real interest was to enrich themselves and to oppress people and so on. And their real interest was that in some ways. And certainly the leadership, the Japanese leadership had that interest. Um, and the Japanese were imperialists and, and they had colonial attitudes towards uh, their, their uh, neighboring Asians. And yet I could imagine that Japanese, this is propaganda for a Japanese audience. Then you imagine that, that there must've been many Japanese who believed that this was what the war was about. It's very appealing. Um, but it sets the Japanese up in that sense um, as uh, it, 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 uh, it, it's profoundly kind of contradictory, but it means that the Japanese were being mobilized in a quite sophisticated way in a kind of with revolutionary rhetoric about liberation and about um, about the, the evils of capitalism, imperialism, Western domination, which meant that the Japanese were, were receiving a very, you know, a, a complicated set of, uh, and, and quite appealing and powerful set of messages, which, and then, you know, thinking a little bit further about that, then you recognize that, okay, this is actually maybe not so different from the kind of propaganda that we have seen in, in other wars uh, in the period since then, wars which are fought in the name of liberation. Uh, and I'm thinking, for example, the most recent one being the United States in Iraq, um, but the, the, the United States in general in the post-war era uh, has tended to uh, sell the wars that it's that it's waging along these kind of liberationist lines, uh, whether it's Vietnam or or Korea or uh, or Iraq or other other uh, American military escapades that have required uh, mobilization. Um, and if you think about it in those terms, then you also start to think about this Japanese propaganda as a in 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 uh, in the chronology of global history. Uh, of of the way that people are mobilized, mass mobilization for uh, for increasingly um, profound uh, kind, kind of conflicts, which require mass mobilization. That you also need a message that um, that is going to inspire people in a time in which um, we we are no longer necessarily attached to uh, old fashioned or conventional notions of co- colonization. Uh, or, or imperialism, so that the Japanese in the 1930s and 40s were, were part of the world. Um, so for one thing, the Japanese themselves were, had, had, a, had a very ambivalent experience with imperialism throughout 
the modern era because of because they had also they had they were imperialists themselves, but they were also victims of Western imperialism. Um, so they had they had an ambivalent relationship with imperialism themselves, and they were attracted to the romance of, of anti-imperialism themselves in a contradictory way. And then, of course, they were they were facing resistance from Asians uh, who were no longer willing to put up with old-fashioned imperialism. And I'm thinking particularly of the Chinese and and uh, the Japanese imperialism in China, which increasingly ran into uh, ran into trouble. Um, and responded in a very brutal, uh, kind of almost radical way, which and, and resulting in all kinds of atrocities, which the Japanese are famous for. Uh, but at the same token, there is a kind of an interactive relationship there between the 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 the, the, the Chinese in particular, um, the other struggles for anti-colonial struggles, struggles for independence against imperialism and colonialism in other parts of Asia. You know, Mahatma Gandhi and. Um, there is there is an interaction between that that history and the evolution of Japan's and Japanese people's view of the world and Japanese ideas about what what that war was about. So I I, rec- I sort of started to realize more and more that this was not a um, this did not con- fit very well with the stereotype. And the stereotype is you know of, of a of a kind of a, a backward Japan, which is fighting for the emperor, fighting in a, as kind of uh, samurai. Um, who this is the kind of the old conventional interpretation of, of the Japanese role in the war was was kind of a, a backward country that was lacking in modernity um, and and easily easily manipulated and uh, and so you didn't really need sophisticated uh, in that in that kind of um, it, according to that narrative you didn't really need sophisticated propaganda to mobilize the Japanese or to motivate them because you know they were they were kind of backward and easy. Uh, easy to to, uh, to they were they would just follow whatever you told them, they, and and my my um, actual my experience of of dealing with the you know confronting those those primary materials and and reading about what people were really saying and doing in the 1930s and 40s um, kind of dispelled that impression. Um, it doesn't make the crimes of the Japanese any less. It doesn't mean that Japan wasn't uh, in many ways I think fascist. Um, that Japanese imperialism was not brutal um, and and uh, you know uh, uh, barbaric uh, but it was a it was a modern this was a modern phenomenon I guess is my point um, and with with a lot more diversity to it and, and contradiction um, than than we tend to think and also that that the Indonesian side of things once I started looking more closely at that and started reading primary materials in Indonesian I I uh, instead of, for example, talking to Indonesians and reading reading post-war Indonesian source material, because that tended to emphasize the negatives about the Japanese. And that's logical, as I said, because the Japanese, you know, it was a disaster. And people but people tended to retrospectively look backward um, and to see the war in these stark negative terms. And it was only I was actually quite frustrated in some ways reading uh, or or talking to people and reading oral histories and reading memoirs because it was always kind of the same story. Um, And it was really when I started reading Indonesian language materials from the war period, uh, which are not so easy to come by. We don't have certain kinds of documentation is very, very hard to come by, like uh, government documents and so on. But what we do have is a lot of propaganda material. And it turns out the Japanese um, employed Indonesians, gave Indonesians a lot of opportunity to make propaganda. Uh, they recognized that they needed Indonesian help uh, to to mobilize Indonesians. Um, and 
it's a tricky business to read that material because you know that they are in, in to some extent they are you know working for the japanese and they and they want to save their skins and they you know they it's so it's not simply you can't read it as a kind of a transparent source but i think that uh you can also recognize when even in in, the, in terms of making propaganda uh reading the the daily newspapers in in java uh from 1942 you can kind of recognize what sorts of issues the indonesians were really interested in what they were excited about um and in in some ways what the japanese meant for indonesians some you know you have as i said it's not it's not um these aren't these aren't really simple source material that you can just uh read without some kind of uh caution um but nevertheless what i started to discover in that exchange was that indeed this notion of an asia that was somehow going to overcome the problems that the west had brought to asia uh, which is a kind of an, an ideological notion, right? It's kind of simplistic to say that the West is responsible for everything that's, you know, all of the modern problems in Asia and that the Japan is, is coming to rescue Indonesia from that. Um, it seems quite naive, ideological. Uh, but I found that there was a lot, actually a, quite a strong positive Indonesian embrace of that idea, at least to begin with. And this had to do also with Indonesian perspectives, on what the war meant, uh, Indonesian experiences of Dutch colonialism. And, um, and what I particularly found was there were certain groups on both sides who were particularly, it seemed, uh, attracted to this notion of Asianism and, and a, a kind of an Asian rebirth, um, who were attracted to this kind of radical rhetoric about uh, overcoming and and casting, you know, throwing off the shackles of Western uh, imperialism uh, and and Western uh, modernity, while still retaining certain aspects of modernity that that were everybody agreed were very positive. And the Japanese sold themselves as a kind of a model for how you could do that, how you could be both Eastern and Western at the same time, uh, in and in both senses in a positive way. Um, this was, of course, rhetoric. Uh, and propaganda, but it was a very appealing idea to many Indonesians, particularly, as I argue in the book, uh, Indonesian nation builders who were not from the very top of the s- social structure uh, because they those at the very top had been working with the Dutch rather closely um, and they were kind of skeptical uh, and they were not they were not so happy with with the arrival of the Japanese, they, uh, but, but that those who were underneath a little bit lower down in the middle of the social spectrum, uh, the middle class you could say, I mean, they could have a long discussion about what does that mean in a, in a colonial context. Um, but that those who had been fighting for the, for the Indonesian nationalists who had been kind of resisting the Dutch, um, who were from a certain social class uh, below the top, uh, but above the masses of the people were kind of drawn to this uh, Asia idea in all of its contradictions in a way. So that there was something uh, about Asia, this notion of Pan-Asianism that I talk about, uh, greater Asia, it was revolutionary in some ways, and it was also quite conservative in other ways. It, it claimed in a very romantic way that Asia could somehow overcome these problems of Western modernity without a kind of a, a, a bloody revolution, like like the, the for example the communists were were uh, aiming for. It, so it's it's an ideology. It's kind of anti-communist uh, in in some basic uh, basic ways. Um, it is it is kind of a third. I would identify it as a sort of third way uh, ideology, which which claims to kind of avoid the um, 
the, the pitfalls of both liberalism and and communism, uh, and it's going to do this through a kind of uh, a, 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 an orientalist notion of of a kind of essentialized Asian culture. Um, so that's kind of uh, in more than a nutshell um, the the kind of the basic uh, argument of the book is to is to trace that experience uh, coming coming at this uh, occupation in some ways seeing all of the ways in which the Japanese and the Indonesians actually shared a lot of interests, at least certain Indonesians and certain Japanese. Um, I haven't talked that much about the, the differentiation, social differentiation of the Japanese side yet, but um, that there was this kind of overlapping uh, in, in, of an ideological interest in Asian renovation. What happens to that when the occupation actually happens, when we get beyond just propaganda um, and promises when we get to the point where the you know the Japanese are on the ground and they actually have to um, sort of actually do something uh, to try to um, to live up to the promises they've made to win the war um, and they are uh, of course uh, we know the end result is a, is a complete disaster uh, so how did we get there how did we get from from point A to point B if we start from this position of actually the Japanese uh, and Indonesians had quite a lot of shared interests and a lot of shared um, hopes that we have not, until now, we have not really recognized that. Um, and But then why did it turn out to be such a disaster anyway? That's kind of the, the basic premise and, and question of the book. Thank you for sharing all of that. I mean, that's what makes your book really interesting and appealing uh, to someone like me, because um, your your book sort of tries to place the like the Japanese Empire and the history of Japanese imperialism within this larger history of colonialism and imperialism. Um, and and see, as as you mentioned, like it, it sort of shows that you know Japan is not necessarily like backward or something, but they are sort of like in certain ways um, they are they are sort of aping uh, the West, but then they also use this rhetoric which is anti. Western. Um, so that, that, that's all extremely fascinating. And of course, the ideology of greater Asia that you talked about was also uh, really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, so could you tell us a little bit about some of the archives? And uh, you've already mentioned, of course, about the initial documents that you came across that led you to, um, you know, that, that led you to... Uh, it, pursue this uh, project. Uh, but could you tell us a little bit about some of the archives that you visited and some of the other sources you use? You mentioned that you used both Japanese and Indonesian sources. So could you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, as I said, uh, researching Southeast Asia under Japanese occupation is quite a challenge because, um, I mean, I know Indonesia but the best by far, but um, there the the documentation that's available is is limited in some ways compared to some other uh, conflicts. Um, we don't have, for example, a lot of official documentation uh, because the Japanese, in in the case of Indonesia, they had uh, at, at the end of the war they had a, a couple of months uh, where they were kind of in a power vacuum between uh, between the surrender and the, and the return of the Dutch, um, in which the Japanese had plenty of time to destroy the evidence of of their occupation. And uh, it was it was a, a rough period. You know, it's it's hard to find, for example, things like uh, ego documents, like diaries and things from the time. And and as I said, that we do have a fair amount of documentation in terms of memory sources, but those memory sources tend to be quite colored and skewed in a way, or or shaped by post-war awareness that the Japanese occupation had been a disaster. So retrospect, right? That and these retrospective views of the period. Um, 
they tend to be quite also quite national and uh, national in orientation, uh, nationalist. Um, so that, for example, oral histories uh, of the Japanese occupation in the on the Indonesian side, the the question is sort of well, did the Japanese contribute to the Indonesian nationalist struggle or did they not? And you know that was the the main question that I kept coming back over and over again in in oral history collections. Uh, I, I did look at the oral history collection. We have an extensive one in in uh, Jakarta um, at the National Archives. And I spent a long time looking through those. And as I said, I ended up a bit frustrated, uh, but I did find some kind of gems within that collection. One of those is from a, uh, a young man named, at the time, a young man named Johar Noor, who kind of keeps coming back in the book, um, who was really unusual because he, uh, he decided to work with the Japanese. Um, and he was a student at the time and was quite idealistic. And he slowly sort of evolved, uh, uh, gradually, uh, like many of his student, uh, his other young Indonesian student uh, colleagues and counterparts, he eventually started off very enthusiastic about the Japanese and ends up at the end quite, quite negative, uh, even radically negative. And in fact, this whole experience of Japanese occupation had kind of uh, awakened him to, uh, to the dangers of imperialism in general. And, and, uh, uh, but he was somebody who who told a story that was more uh, more nuanced, uh, more ambivalent, um, and uh, but that was kind of rare. What I what I found more was generally stories that tended to be quite negative. Um, and as I said, it's not surprising, but it but it does kind of paint the whole period in one shade. And so, how to get past that? Uh, and gradually, what I what I realized is that what we do have is a very rich kind of trove of propaganda materials. That's really the, the main thing that survived. So I used, uh, in particular, I used newspapers. Uh, we have Japanese language newspapers. We have Indonesian language newspapers. Uh, Ajaraya is an example of an Indonesian language newspaper, which began uh, shortly after the Japanese arrived. And then we have, you know, we have full archive of that uh, newspaper that was published in Jakarta um, in, in Indonesian language. Uh, and we have... The um, there's a newspaper called the Java Shimbun, which was uh, uh, which was um, under the uh, it was kind of a, a, a run by the the Asahi um, uh, in in Tokyo, sort of people from the Asahi, and they had taken over in the end of 1942. But I discovered a uh, a newspaper also that had been published uh, kind of independently in the first uh, nine months or so of the occupation, which is called Unabara. Um, uh, Sekidoho in the first in the beginning, and then Unabara, which means the the the, the South Seas in ancient uh, ancient language, which the Japanese were were uh, often making use of at the time. They they kind of like to cloak their mission in this in this uh, the notion of a kind of a return to an ancient Japanese uh, maritime empire. Uh, so they they like to use these old terminology as well. And I got a copy. Uh, Unabara was reprinted in the mid 1990s, um, and I, so I got a full copy of it, and uh, I found this to be absolutely fascinating. And that ended up being kind of the the, the heart of the, the the source material for the thesis. This was a newspaper that was published by the Japanese prop, by the Java Propaganda Unit, the Java Propaganda Squad, I believe I call it in the in the book. Um, and I became more and more fascinated in with you know. It, with that newspaper and with the people who had made it. And um, I discovered that there was quite a diversity of voices in the newspaper. Um, and uh, even more, I think, strikingly was that these were 
kind of Japanese, uh, the writers and contributors to that newspaper were Japanese of some repute back home in Japan at the time, who had been mobilized to come to uh, to join the Japanese forces in a quite a modern uh, development, a modern phenomenon, which is we think of when we think of the, the Iraq war, for example, we think of embedding, the embedding of journalists, right? Well, the first ones to do that uh, had been uh, the Germans, the, the Nazi Germans, um, in the uh, in in the late 1930s, early 40s, um, they had decided to uh, also to train actually journalists uh, and and other uh, culture men of culture uh, cultural experts to make propaganda to train them actually as soldiers and to have them accompany the German troops that were occupying different parts of Europe. And the Japanese were quite inspired by this. Uh, the Italians, of course, the, the fascist Italians had had were really pioneers in many ways in making use of uh, of propaganda. Uh, and recognizing the value of it in modern times, you can also go, of course, to the, the competitors of the of the Axis. The the uh, uh, the, the Soviet Union uh, was also quite uh, you know sophisticated in, in propaganda making. So this is a period in which people are are you know those in charge uh, are recognizing the power and the importance of propaganda. And so the Japanese decided to do something similar to what the Germans have been doing um, in uh, in Southeast Asia and. They were also motivated by the by the failures of the Japanese in China. So the Japanese had been in this brutal, you know, involved in this uh, brutal kind of uh, quagmire of a war in China since 1937. They had not devoted a lot of uh, energy to propaganda as a kind of as as an organized, structured, uh, you know, endeavor. Uh, the military, at least, had not done this, so it was a bit haphazard. And of course, Japan had made a, a complete, uh, you know, it's an understatement to say that Japanese, the Japanese had, had made a disaster in, Ch- in China. They had, you know, they, they had committed atrocities. Um, they were, they didn't understand Chinese resistance. Uh, that's a whole story in itself. But I do emphasize that the experience of China a lot in my book, that's something I think that needs to get more attention in, in understanding the Japanese in Southeast Asia and why, uh, in, a, in a sense, they were so radical and radicalized. Um, it was this, uh, I, I argue, that Chinese resistance against the Japanese, which which actually had, of course, was the, the main precipitator of the Pacific War, you could say, because the Japanese grew increasingly frustrated with Jap- Chinese resistance, didn't know how to handle it, didn't know what to do with it. Um, and and in, in their endeavor to try to suppress the Chinese resistance, they, they ended up more and more in confrontation with the West. Um, and so they mobilized uh, these, these groups of cultural, um, cultural uh, experts in various, uh, various types, uh, writers, artists, uh, filmmakers, uh, musicians. Um, they mo- mobilized them into, into different units that then went to different parts of occupied Southeast Asia, accompanied the forces. And in the case of Java, they, they made this, uh, they made this newspaper as a record of, you know, it was a, it was a, a very um, fascinating record of that experience. Uh, and again, for made for a Japanese audience. So this is a Japanese language newspaper. So you can see what kinds of messages the Japanese were trying to propagate among their own side, how they represented of the war to themselves, um, and as I said, in in quite uh, in, in quite sophisticated, diverse ways, um, and it was the it was that newspaper that kind of forms the heart of the thesis in some ways, along with the Ajaraya newspaper, the newspaper that the the Japanese, uh, um, along with the Indonesians, uh, initiated in the early days of the occupation. So those two 
newspapers are very important. I also used uh, other kinds of journals, published uh, published documents from the time. There were official, uh, also administrative documents. I went to the the Dutch, the, the Netherlands Institute for War Documentation has a very rich uh, collection of kind of uh, of doc- documents that the Dutch collected in 1945 and in the, in the period shortly after that. They were interested in prosecuting the Japanese. They were interested in understanding. And, and, and even maybe prosecuting Indonesians for being collaborators from their perspective. Um, so they collected whatever they could find. It's kind of a, a random assortment of things. It's not, it's not very organized. Um, but you do find, for example, there I found intelligence documents collected by, uh, in Indonesian language in particular, documents that perhaps were collected under Japanese auspices, but were written in Indonesian largely, which give kind of inside accounts from the perspective of Indonesian, uh, I think, you know, you could call them spies or, or uh, uh, also administrators to some extent, but these are reports. They, some of them, I think, might have gone to Indonesian leaders. Some of them have, might have gone to the Japanese. And these are reports that kind of give, a, give a insights into, uh, you know, in, in a more sober and less propagandistic way about what's really going on. Um, and I tried to make as much use of those as I could. And that's kind of where I get some, I think, some some balance between the propaganda materials and the, and the behind the scenes kind of materials. And one last uh, source that I can think of that was very useful, I think, is a diary that was written by uh, a, a Dutchman uh, named Janssen, who... Uh, one of the uh, one of the um, reviews of my book was was I think rightly uh, made a little uh, critical comment that I didn't say more about him. Uh, that's indeed a, I think a, a mistake on my part. Something I could have said more about. Where did that diary come from? Janssen was a very high ranking Dutch official who. Um, was uh, I think he was in the Rad von India, we call it the the the, the Council of India, the, the the Dutch colony uh, before the war. He was very interested in Japan, and he was actually fluent in Japanese, and also spoke some Indonesian. Um, and when the war came, uh, the Dutch were mostly thrown into uh, prison camps, uh, and that's a whole other story. It's a story that I purposely did not focus on so much. Uh, because I felt that that had already gotten enough coverage uh, from uh, on the Dutch side. Um, Janssen managed to stay out of the camps by agreeing to work for the Japanese uh, military in the broadcasting department. Uh, he refused to go online. He, he or, uh, uh, rather, he refused to go on air. I shouldn't. I should say we didn't have online back then. He refused to go on air, um, but he uh, agreed to do translation work for them, and he kept a diary. And it's it's uh, a diary that's absolutely fascinating because he has Indonesian friends. He is very critical of the Dutch. Um, he speaks Japanese, so he has Japanese contacts. Uh, and he's somebody who was sort of in the middle of things. The Dutch were not very happy with him because he they, they thought he was a, a traitor, actually, because he, he had kind of made a deal with the Japanese in order to stay out of the camp. So he was kind of in no man's land. Um, and he kept this diary throughout the war, uh, and and unfortunately, sadly, uh, died uh, just before the end of the war of uh, of dysentery, I believe, and in Japanese custody. He had, he was in Kempei Thai custody at the end of the war, and that's a whole other story. Uh, but but in fact, uh, it might be the, the because he died, his his whole diary ended up in a drawer. Uh, and was only like kind of rediscovered by his family in the 1980s, I believe. And that is quite a remarkable story. It's, it's, it's called, it's in Dutch. It hasn't been translated into English. It's called In Deze Halve Gefangenis, in this half prison. Uh, and 
it's not something that I that I used really heavily, but it was really an important kind of counterweight uh, in terms of chronology, in terms of kind of the perspective, a, a kind of a critical perspective on what everybody was doing. So there are sort of important moments in the in the narrative where Janssen's insights, I think, are important. You know, help help to give some more kind of a, a, another interesting balance to the story. Thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I think, I mean, I'm just listening to you. I realized that you were like very well positioned to write this book because of your knowledge of these languages and you, you sort of put together all of these diverse sources to write this book. So that was really interesting to hear about. Um, so, of course, like uh, the East Indies um, or, or, or Dutch East Indies, or the which, which has now become the country of Indonesia, um, that it's a very diverse society. And... Um, so you, in the book, you introduce us to the society, politics, the ideological milieu um, of the, the, the Dutch East Indies. So could you tell us a little bit about that and about why the Dutch East Indies were particularly receptive to Japanese rhetoric and propaganda? And as, and as a follow up to your um, what you said about um, the Sino-Japanese war, could you also tell us a little bit about the position of Chinese Indonesians, the Chinese Indonesian oh. minority in Indonesia? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, well, Indonesian receptivity to the Japanese, I think, in in a simple way, can be related to the um, the oppressiveness, the re- repressiveness of the Dutch response to Indonesian nationalist uh, aspirations. Uh, structurally, the the Dutch were very heavy handed in the way that they responded to Indonesian nationalist aspirations. Their response was, you know, in a, in a simple sense, was kind of to to uh, nip it in the bud, you know, to try to repress it before it got uh, out of hand. Um, and um, they also, the Dutch were in in a bit of a, uh, a, a, I mean, a classic kind of colonial fantasy. They believed that they were good colonizers, that they were, you know, that they were um, that they were benevolent and paternalistic, um, and that Indonesians appreciated that. Um, and they were very uh, naive in the sense that you know they, their their colonial power um, blinded them to Indonesian suffering, um, and of course in a colonial situation in this with, with this kind of asymmetry of power, uh, your Indonesian servant or your Indonesian uh, uh, employee is not going to be telling you every day about uh, what they really think of you, right? They'll be uh, kind of uh, uh, going along uh, trying to survive, um, and. Um, the, uh, so that's the, the Dutch, uh, responded when they did encounter, uh, this rising Indonesian nationalism, which is something that really starts to gain ground in the 1920s. It's actually initiated to some extent by students, uh, uh, elite Indonesian students who are lucky enough, uh, and privileged enough to go and study in the Netherlands. Uh, and when they go there, they uh, they discover that in the Netherlands um, that there is more actually more freedom of thinking and more freedom of movement and and, uh, and association uh, than they have back at back at home. And they rec- they start to realize that the you know how repressive the colonial system is. Uh, I mean, if they hadn't already recognized it, this the, the kind of contradictions of that system. Um, so that you have the rise of an Indonesian nationalist movement in the uh, starting already. It, I mean, that's a long story, right? We could talk all, all day probably about the, interne- the history of Indonesian nationalism, the complexity of it, the fact that you have a, a large, very large group, relatively speaking, 
in between the Dutch and the Indonesians, which are called the the uh, the, the mestizo, the uh, Indies, uh, the Indo-Europeans, people who have of mixed descent, who actually had Dutch status, um, and uh, they they uh, had their own kind of uh, movement. To they they were very early um, in uh, in kind of seeking. Um, uh, 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 starting something like a nationalist movement. Um, and then you also have the, indeed, you, you raised the issue of the Chinese. Well, the, the Indonesia or the, the Netherlands Indies, uh, that part of the world had a long history of Chinese immigration. Um, you had a, you know, you had a substantial Chinese, uh, ethnic Chinese community. And then in, then you have a larger kind of a heightened uh, amount of Chinese uh, uh, immigration into the Indies in the late 19th and early 20th century, along with a heightened immigration of, you know, other groups of people in, in that period in which, uh, you know, global uh, maritime sea connections and so on become much, uh, much easier to, uh, to manage. Um and uh, so you have uh, an influx of a, a newer influx of ethnic Chinese. The Dutch gave them a special status. They, they kind of made use of them. The Dutch had a classic kind of divide and conquer setup where they used different groups. They set them against each other. They gave different groups different privileges. Um, so, for example, these people who were of a mixed descent, they, they gave them Dutch status. Uh, th- those who the Chinese were given a, a kind of an in-between status, which was better to some extent than the native, the status of the quote unquote, the natives, the inlanders. Um, so you had a system in which the, the Chinese in some ways were kind of located in between the, the Dutch rulers and Indonesians. The Chinese became in the early 20th century became as because of developments in China, they became themselves more nationally conscious more, uh, they identified more with the homeland, the Chinese homeland, some of them, some of them were quite assimilated into Indonesian society, but a certain proportion of them uh, remained very, you know, were, were very much uh, de- identified as, as Chinese. Um, and they started, uh, they, they were very nationalistic and they, they managed to achieve some, uh, you know, in, in, the, uh, in, in struggles for their rights and, and privileges with the Dutch, they managed to have some success uh, with the Dutch. And th- Indonesians, on the other hand, saw the the Chinese uh, very often as competitors uh, because they had kind of a, again they had a special connection with the Dutch. They were kind of they had a kind of favorite favorite position favored position. They had control over certain kinds of monopolies and things. They collected the taxes for the Dutch, um, and so they had small enterprises, uh, particularly the kind of the, the lower reaches of the of the colonial economy was was kind of dominated by uh, ethnic Chinese. Above them were the Dutch and and these large corporate uh, interests, which were much more larger scale and much more profitable. But what Indonesians encountered in their daily life more often or very often was was ethnic Chinese. And they they saw them more and more as competitors. Um, And uh, as the Indonesian nationalist movement evolved, um, partly in, in, in response to the Chinese nationalist movement, uh, and partly as, as uh, again, in a kind of a competitive, amb- ambiguous relationship towards it. Um, so that um, this, uh, so that's that's one part of the story. We see the Indonesian nationalism evolving in the 1920s and 30s in particular, um, with a kind of ambivalent relationship to the ethnic Chinese community, which are seen as not really trusted, seen as kind of more, more cozy with the Dutch, you know, not necessarily fair, to the, to the Chinese in general. And of course, you had a very diverse Chinese community. So it's not like they were all rich 
um, in this in this wonderful you know uh, privileged position. Uh, many Chinese were also working class. Many Chinese, as I said, were kind of assimilated into Indonesian society to some de- some degree or more. Um, but uh, you have this tension in Indonesian society between the uh, the pribumi, the, the it, so the indigenous Malay population, and those of ethnic Chinese descent, which the Dutch, as I said, kind of take advantage of. And um, in the uh, in the 1930s, um, you have this period of heavy Dutch repression of Indonesian nationalism. They 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 send uh, Sukarno and Hatta off to exile. Um, they only allow Indonesian nationalism that is cooperative with the Dutch. You're not allowed to basically to, to you're certainly not allowed to um, pro, uh, to to proclaim that you want the Dutch out uh, or that the Dutch should be resisted. Right. So uh, but they did tolerate a, a kind of more uh, moderate Indonesian nationalism that was gradualist, that were willing to work with the Dutch um, in a more brotherly fashion, you might say. Um and then the war starts in uh, between Japan and China. And I talk more in my book about also the 1930s and these kinds of early contacts between Japanese and Indonesians. I won't go into all the detail on that now, but um, there were some. Uh, and it was, it's an interesting history in itself, and it does kind of set the stage for what comes later. Uh, when the war breaks out between Japan and China, uh, it's, you know, it's very clear to, to certainly to certain more well-informed Indonesian observers that this is an imperialist war, that the Japanese are the aggressors, that they are, um, that they are, uh, you know, doing in China what, what the West has done to Indonesia. But uh, the, this, this history of kind of, as I said, kind of ambivalent relations with the ethnic Chinese intention and the sense of them as not really Indonesian, not really devoted to Indonesia um, and more out for themselves which is a narrative, by the way, that, that's a bit, a bit resembling the narrative of the Jews in Europe, right? This notion of these, these people who are more out for themselves than they are for the nation. Um, I talk about this a little bit in my book. Um, in Southeast Asia, there is a bit of, you know, that history of, uh, of the Chinese being depicted by the local populations as this kind of, uh, as this group that is out for themselves and selfish and, you know, part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So that view of the Chinese as kind of competitors colors the Indonesian reaction to the war uh, in China. And there, and many Indonesians kind of decide to kind of not really to take a distance from it, not really to take a, take a stand or position on it. And so uh, this is one of the reasons that the Japanese, you could say, or the, that the Indonesians are more open to the Japanese than they might have been when the Japanese arrive, because they have taken a bit of a distance on that Sino-Japanese conflict. And I can't help but think a little bit, actually, about the war in Ukraine that's going on right now. Um, and uh, maybe that's a bit of an, uh, an unexpected segue, but there are interesting parallels. Uh, and the thing that strikes me the most, and the reason that I think of it, is that we are seeing polls around the world now about this um, conflict in Ukraine. Um, and many uh, in many places outside of the West, there is ambivalence about this war. There might even be, to some extent, some support for Russia. Um, and we, I think, in the West, uh, who are uh, privy to you know a lot of a lot of journalism and coverage of that war, uh, can recognize that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is an invasion. It's an imperialist war, right? I mean, I would certainly argue that that's what's going on fundamentally. Um, but um, the those who those who are looking on in, in the non-West at, at the moment now are remembering 
the West, uh, that the that the you know the history of the West and Western colonialism and Western uh, infiltration uh, and Western uh, hypocrisy in their in their uh, behavior over the last you know two hundred years or so <laughs> or more right in in the rest of the world, which has which has made people very cynical towards Western claims. Western claims to be defending liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all this stuff. Um, so that when the when the West depicts Ukraine as as the friend the friend of you know European civilization defending themselves against Russian imperialism, um, there are a lot of people around the world who are are taking a, a distance, uh, and not so much because they love the Russians. Um, it's because they uh, they have this ambivalence about the other side, and this is. This is, you know, I think you can draw. To, I mean, it's not, it's not an exact parallel by any means. Um, you know, if you if you want to draw a parallel, I think uh, you can. For example, the Japanese move into Manchuria in 1931 is, is, I think, in a lot of ways, can be compared to the um, to the Russian move into Ukraine. Um, but um, you know, it's it's this complex background uh, where you uh, you know, which which makes which produced an ambivalence. Towards what the Japanese had already been doing, a a and 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 in retrospect it looks naive. In retrospect, it looks uh, you know very uh, like a very bad judgment to think that the Japanese are not going to do in Southeast Asia what they had already been doing in China and Northeast Asia. Uh, and I think you know over time the Southeast Asians uh, recognize that, and that's one of the reasons why in the end when they look back at this history and they tell the story from retrospect. They see, you know, they see the commonality. They see the Japanese are imperialists, and that it's it's you know highly ironic that the Japanese claim to be something else because if anything they ended up worse um, than than the Western imperialists. Um, so, uh, but this is, I think, the you know this this really important. These two uh, ingredients. One is this uh, this complex history of Indonesian. Um, uh, this kind of uh, antagonism towards the Chinese community, the way that the, the Dutch colonialism had fostered, had, had encouraged that situation. So they are also, the Dutch also, I think, need to be the Dutch role in this needs to be recognized, and and the Dutch need to take responsibility too for for that history. Which, which by the way, as we go into the post-war period, into the revolutionary period, and, and all the way into the period of independent Indonesia, this continues to be a problem, uh, a, t- a point of tension. Um, a scapegoating of the Chinese as something that became a kind of a habit uh, is something. It's a habit that didn't die in 1945. Um, and and then the other thing is this: the, the particular um, intensity of the Dutch suppression of Indonesian nationalism, which, if you compare to the other imperial powers, um, the Dutch you were very heavy-handed. They really did not give much much. Uh, you know, they didn't give an inch. Uh, to Indonesian nationalism in the way that if you look at some of the other, the, the Western empires and their responses to nationalist movements, uh, there was a bit more movement. Uh, the Americans in the Philippines, the British in Burma and India. And these are complicated stories. I, I don't, I, what, I, what I really want to avoid is some kind of an idea that the, the British and the Americans were somehow more enlightened than the Dutch. Uh, it's not that simple. Uh Empires respond in certain ways in different places, depending on the power balance, depending on uh, on the situation. And you know, what, one very fundamental, basic sense in which the, for example, the Americans in the Philippines were different from the Dutch in Indonesia or the Netherlands Indies, is that the Philippines just wasn't very important to the American economy 
right? It was important strategically to some extent, but the Philippines have never been an, an essential factor in American economics and American economic survival. For the Dutch, the investment in the Netherlands Indies was enormous. You have a tiny country in the northwestern corner of Europe with uh, ruling over a, po- a country that is enormous you know, in, in comparison, enormous population and enormous wealth that the Dutch had been able to extract uh, over, over a very long period. The Dutch had gotten very used to this situation and it was practically impossible for them actually to imagine ever being without it. They, they, they couldn't, you know, it was barely impossible, very impossible for them to imagine the Netherlands as, as, a, as a nation without having this jewel in the crown of the, of the Netherlands Indies. Um, and you could compare this, I think, to the Japanese in China uh, and Manchuria. And we see that the Japanese too had invested so heavily in China and Manchuria, not to mention Korea, um, that they too could not imagine an alternative to maintaining that imperial relationship. And if push came to shove, they were they were more than ready to uh, to slaughter people, um, to you know commit uh, untold atrocities in order to defend that lifeline, as they called it. Uh, and there's a, there's a, I think, you know, this is a similar situation in the Netherlands Indies in the 1930s. The Dutch were not remotely ready to consider uh, any concessions because that, to, to them, that, that, that was, uh, that would be undermining their way of life. And they underestimated, of course, the power of Indonesian nationalism, which colonialism, you know, colonials tend to do anyway. That was a very long-winded uh, response, but it was a big question. Thank you. No, that that was really enlightening, and it was really fascinating to learn about um, I, I, the 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 sort of the complexity of the Dutch East Indies, their ambivalent position with relation to the uh, Sino-Japanese War, and sort of the, the general like um, you know the, the 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 general milieu of Dutch colonialism uh, in the East Indies. Um, so in the second half of your book, you narrate some of the major events and the general trajectory of the Japanese occupation of Java. Um, this is also a period when there's all, uh, all sorts of crises. And um, although um, uh, Japan's occupation had begun with some hope and expectations, at least among some people in Java, it sort of ended up leaving this sarte. So could you just tell us a little bit about some of the major events of the occupation and how the Japanese occupation of uh, Java and Indonesia comes to an end? Okay. Um, my book focuses, uh, you probably noticed, uh, on, on the first year uh, of the occupation. The occupation in total lasted about three and a half years, uh, from, uh, from March of 1942 to August of 1945. One of the reasons that I focus on that first year is I was really, as I said, kind of uh, the stories that we have of the occupation tend to emphasize its later stages, which, uh, you know, the, the disaster that, that, that came about. Um, and, which is logical, as I said, but we have we and, and it's it's been difficult to kind of re uh, recapture, recover to some extent what that experience was like in 1942 before, you know, before things turned out the way that they did. Which you know is it's a very distinctive uh, period, um, a period of possibilities, a period of imaginings, and I felt that the, those imaginings, both on the Japanese and Indonesian side, were very uh, diverse, uh, but also uh, kind of um, they pointed uh, kind of in a, they're, they're kind of a mirror of the two societies at the time um, and their, their contradictions, um, their tensions, their, 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 uh, their ambitions. Um, and, um, 
and you have also kind of a microcosm of of the of, on the two sides, uh, you know, the, the tension between the military and the civilians and all these things. So, um, but in terms of the evolution, uh, what we see in general, uh, what I kind of depict in the book through the first sort of two thirds of the book, um, the first part of the book sort of starts off in the period before the war, uh, first on the the uh, the Japanese and then on the Indonesian side. Um, and then we look at the. Uh, there's a chapter on uh, on the the establishment of the Japan, uh, of the Java Propaganda Squad, and uh, and then we move into the actual occupation in uh, 1942. Um, I have a chapter on uh, on uh, the first encounters in early 42, uh, in, in in March of 42, and just in those first days uh, where there's this uh, you know where where, the, where all of these dreams and ambitions finally run into the actual reality of interaction on the ground. And, uh, and there is a kind of a, a, what I call a honeymoon period. There's a period where both sides are kind of, uh, uh, they are very open, relatively speaking, towards each other. There is a, a bit of a romance even between the two sides. And as I say, the Japanese are always in this position of the superior position. There were always Japanese also who were wanted to be repressive uh, and suspicious towards Indonesians, like everyone else, uh, the, the, the Kempeitai, for example, was didn't really operate in any other way. Um, but in this early phase, you have uh, Commander Imamura uh, in charge of the Japanese forces, and Commander Imamura is also a man of contradictions. Uh, he's a man who, for example, is well known, uh, maybe best known for supporting the, the the establishment of comfort stations and the comfort women um, in in China and then in in uh, Netherlands Indies. Um, but, uh, so there's, there's certainly a contradiction there. Uh, so I don't want to paint him as kind of a liberal progressive guy in, in, in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, but he was a relative liberal with uh, among the Japanese officers. And so the fact that he was in charge, uh, meant that this early phase of the occupation, uh, under Imamura was also somewhat liberal, uh, a period that allowed for a lot of experimentation, a period in which there was a lot of tension between different interests on the Japanese side, between the, the military, uh, the, the junior officers, the senior officers, the, uh, the Kempei Tai, um, the civilians, uh, the, uh, and, 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 uh, the, uh, also the, the Japanese uh, bureaucrats and administrators, um, and these tensions are there from the beginning, but but the 1942 is is I think a, a year under again as I said under Imamura in which the, these different interests are kind of uh, are competing with each other more. And by the time we get to 1943, Imamura is actually shipped out to the front uh, elsewhere. Uh, the the Java uh, propaganda unit. Uh, the, most of those uh, cultural experts who came in with the Japanese forces also go home. Uh, and you have what I, a period of what I call normalization. Uh, that's uh, so from from around the end of forty two onwards, you have more uh, less uh, less openness um, and more uh, and, and more kind of firm Japanese control uh, and and increasing Indonesian disillusionment uh, and disappointment. So uh, one thing I haven't mentioned is also uh, there you know there are different timelines. There's an Indonesian side of the timeline. A really important event is the uh, return of Sukarno to Java in July of 1942. So between March and July of 42, uh, the the main leader of uh, Indonesian nationalism, who has been in exile and and uh, has been away for uh, for almost eight years, um, 
he uh, he he is he's still away. Right? It takes a while for the Japanese to to bring him back. He's in Sumatra uh, when the Japanese come in. So that for those first four months are a period in which other nationalists and other other Indonesians try to kind of take. Uh, uh, to, to take advantage of the opportunities that the Japanese have. And it's a period in which we have some conservative, relatively conservative former, uh, co- what I call cooperative uh, nationalists who had cooperated with the Dutch. And these are more elite figures. They are the ones who are actually involved, most closely involved in the early stages in collaborating with the Japanese. They are also intimately involved with the launching and the running of the Ajaraya newspaper that I talked about, this Indonesian newspaper, uh, which was very influential. And then Sukarno arrives and there's gradually kind of, there's a, there's a bit of a, you know, there's, there's some competition between these different factions of the Indonesian nationalist movement, but it's, it's very hard to get, get around Sukarno. Um, and pretty soon, uh, you know, Sukarno has a lot of, a, a lot of clout and a lot of uh, charisma, which these other Indonesian uh, nationalists don't have. And of course, the fact that he's been away for eight years makes him a, a particular heroic figure. Um, you know, under, under Dutch, he's, he's braved all this Dutch suppression. And he's, you know, we know Sukarno, he's a fantastically charismatic figure. Um, and so he agrees to work with the Japanese. Um, I talk a bit about how he also um, was, a, was at some extent a, a man of contradictions, uh, a man who was uh, on, on one hand, very well read, very sophisticated, very progressive uh, to, to the left politically, uh, so recognizing the Japanese to some extent as imperialists and fascists on the one hand, but on the other hand, intrigued by the Japanese, um, intrigued by the kind of success story that they seem to represent. Uh, so he was seduced uh, to some extent by them. Um, and this is this is what I argue is the reason why he decided to collaborate as, as, as much as he did. He later, I think, to some extent, obviously came up, came to regret it, as, as most, you know, most people, most Indonesians who at first been drawn to the Japanese, you know, slowly, many of them started to regret it uh, over time. And his experience as we move into 1943, uh, he was, he and Hata, who was his right-hand man, who the, the two of them were kind of the two, you know, main figures of, of, the, of the, the non-cooperator uh, segment of the Indonesian nationalist movement. They were the ones who, you know, who kind of took over the reins of it, representing Indonesia, uh, collaborating with the Japanese to some extent, uh, Sukarno more than Hatta, but both of them worked with the Japanese, um, hoping that they could get something out of this relationship in a practical sense. Uh, they could get things like military training, uh, certainly the chance to to communicate with the masses of the Indonesian people in a way the Dutch had never allowed them to do, uh, the spread of the Indonesian language, which the Japanese uh, did sponsor, even as they also tried to spread Japanese uh, for very pragmatic reasons. And uh, so he and Hatta were hoping in 1943 that they would sort of start over with a new movement that would that would finally kind of realize some of these nationalist ambitions under the Japanese. And what this is called Putra, and that started in the in beginning of 43. And what they ran into, in fact, was as I said, a Japanese uh, military regime that had become in some ways more conservative, more skeptical, more control oriented um, than the than the one in 42. Um, and so they were constantly frustrated, basically, with their in their efforts to get something off the ground um, in terms of a, a kind of a nationalist movement under the Japanese. The Japanese were suspicious. They uh, they tried to keep the reins on them very tight. They they censored them. They kind of tr- tried to force them to only talk about approved subjects. Um, and uh, so the, the Indonesian uh, leaders felt again they again they felt thwarted, uh, frustrated. Um, and this is kind of a pattern that, that we see again and again. 
uh, and in terms of the timeline, um, we get to late 1943. And this is in my book. I end up uh, actually in the, in the last chapter of the book covering the period from 1943, late, the, the late 1943 to actually from, from that, from the early 43, sorry, from, from March of 43 all the way through to 45. But this uh, kind of the, the, the uh, penultimate chapter of the book, which takes us through that period, we look at uh, a, an increasingly uh, terrible period for Indonesia, a period in which the Japanese... Uh, increasingly exploiting Indonesia and its resources for the war effort, um, increasingly mobilizing and exploiting Indonesians for forced labor, uh, an increasingly desperate Japanese side, which is also uh, a Japanese, I don't want to excuse the Japanese actions purely because of it was a war uh, that made it worse, but the Japanese were also imperialists. They were also to some extent racist. Um, so of course, they let the Indonesians do a lot of the, the heavy lifting. Uh, they mobilized huge numbers of Indonesians uh, in these infamous uh, Romusha to work as, as forced laborers, working class Indonesians in particular. And one of the things that I what, that I haven't you know maybe uh, emphasized, which I do really try to emphasize in the book, is that there we have to talk a bit about social class um, and and the di- the diversity of social experiences of the Japanese. And one of the things that you unfortunately see is that in the second half of the occupation, that it's the Indonesian working class um, suffers tremendously, um, suffers huge numbers of casualties. And, you know, Indonesian, uh, the Indonesian administrators and Indonesian nationalists are to some extent kind of powerless because, of course, it's the Japanese who are who are at the top of the system, who are running it, who are running this kind of exploitation machine. Um, So. We have to be, we have to be, to some extent, understanding of the position of Indonesian nationalists who and, and Indonesian officials who are collaborating with the Japanese that they didn't necessarily see this coming, um, and that they are not the primary people responsible. But they do continue to work with the Japanese. They continue to pr- to make propaganda for the Japanese. To some extent, I think that there is a continued faith in this notion that the Japanese mean well, that they're on the same side in this war. Um, and that it's better, still better to work with the Japanese than to work with the Dutch because the Dutch, you know, had, uh, you know, trying to resist the Japanese, then you end up with, uh, with the Dutch. That's even worse. So there was, I think, even as the Indonesians became more and more disillusioned about the Japanese, um, and more disappointed and eventually some, you know, some Indonesians start to resist, particularly the younger Indonesians who I talk about in my book, uh, the younger students who were very pro-Japanese in the beginning of the occupation. By the end of the occupation, it's the young Indonesian students, in particular nationalists, who are becoming more and more aware of this contradiction between uh, this idea of Indonesian, you know, serving Indonesian national interests and working with the Japanese. Um, And that, you know, that that the Japanese have kind of seduced uh, the leadership to some extent uh, of the of the nationalist movement, um, and that it's it's up to the students uh, to kind of open the, open the eyes of, of Sukarno's and these others. To, that the okay, that maybe Sukarno and Hatta are already having second thoughts, but this is students in the end who are become really radical in their anti Japanese sentiments. They have also more contact with the working class people, um, and they're seeing the suffering uh, out in the streets. Um, and to some extent, I think the, the as we go up the social ladder in Indonesia, the, the, the Indonesians, uh, nationalists and Indonesian officials are to some extent kind of um, they are uh, kind of shielded from the worst 
excesses or worse than excess, the worst crimes of the Japanese. Um, so that you have Indonesians in various places, uh, relatively, you know, elite Indonesians who remain to some extent loyal to the Japanese, not aware of the degree to which the Japanese occupation is turning into a, a kind of a Holocaust almost for the, for the Indonesian working class. Um, not a Holocaust in terms of an active genocide, but, but in terms of starvation, exploitation, uh, disease, uh, shortages of the most basic things so that people didn't even have clothes to wear. Java had always been, an, uh, at least under the Dutch, Java had uh, been designed as an export economy. Actually, all of, all of the Netherlands Indies had been designed to export products to the West and to, uh, to, to, you know, to purchase clothing and food uh, on the international market. During the war, of course, the Japanese occupation made all of that impossible. So there were structural reasons why the Indonesian economy already was in bad shape, which again, you can blame the Dutch for some of that. Um, but the Japanese made it a whole lot worse. There's a very good book on this subject, I think, if you're really interested in learning more about um, the, the experience of the, of the Indonesian working class, the... Um, the the brutality and and the ignorance uh, and and the and the uh, mistakes of Japanese policymaking, uh, and that's uh, Shigeru Sato's book uh, War Nationalism and Peasants, which came out in the, in 1994, um, and that's that's a book that really looks at the social history uh, of the occupation in more depth than I do. I I I, I uh, you know I, I relied a lot on that book, which I think is a, you know excellent book uh, for to help uh, me kind of. Uh, uh, bring this the, this kind of the, the social history of the period, uh, socioeconomic history, into the picture. But I think we really can't narrate this this history without that, right? We we don't want to just stay in the in the area of the kind of the platitudes of propaganda. Uh, I was really interested in in looking at this on the ground and what did it really mean for people and what were the consequences uh, of this of this uh, you know interaction. So we end up in 1945 in a in a you know a devastated. Uh, society as a result of all this. Absolutely, thank thank you thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I mean the the the, uh, the absolutely the economic and social uh, devastation of um, Indonesia is sort of like a, it's like a really um, horrible event with the millions who died of famine and uh, the forced labor and the comfort women and all of the other things that you sort of. Um, um, mentioned right now. Um, so we're coming close to the end of the interview, but I have another burning question to ask. It's it's actually a reference to something you mentioned earlier. Um, so you, you mentioned in the conclusion, you note that the story of Greater Asia as an ideology does not come to an end with the war, but it continues on in new and permutated ways in the post-war period. So could you just tell us a little bit about the persistence of this ideology? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um I, uh, again, what, as, as I mentioned uh, in, in the beginning when I was talking about encountering these Japanese sources, uh, propaganda sources, and, and realizing that this Japanese propaganda was quite sophisticated. Um, and that sort of got me intrigued, you know, where did this come from? Where did, why were the Japanese um, propagating such a sophisticated kind of critique of the West, um, which in a way that I thought could be not just the West, but of Western modernity, capitalism, imperialism, um, and this notion of an Asian exception somehow that, you know, that the Japanese represent an exception uh, that was going to lead the way uh, by combining East and West. So uh, I, I, from, on the Japanese side, I argued that it was actually this contact, uh, this, this, uh, the war in China um, that had kind of um, given a boost to these kind, this kind of missionary notion on the Japanese side of, of saving Asia, rescuing Asia from the West. Um, 
and uh, you know, in in a in a world uh, of anti-colonialism, in some ways, the Japanese were kind of borrowing from anti-colonial rhetoric of of anti-colonial movements, um, uh, you know, and, and movements on the left uh, throughout the world in their critiques of capitalism and imperialism, um, but integrating this into an Orientalist uh, narrative, which said. All of this, you know, this the, the the Marxists are right to some extent, you know, in 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 analyzing how Western imperialism work, but that's Western imperialism. Um, you know, the Japanese are different, and we're not going to have a communist revolution. We're going to um, return to our essence, and this is how we're going to solve this problem. Not by just going backwards, but going forward with a kind of a cultural a, a resurrection of our Asianness on the cultural in the cultural terms combined with all the benefits of modern Western uh, science and technology, Western institutions, all of these things that bring, you know, that bring progress. So they weren't against progress and they were very much modernists in that sense. Uh, you know, this is something, something we could talk about fascism too, as a kind of a, a, a movement, which had some somewhat of a similar storyline uh, where it was this idea that somehow modern modernity, Western modernity in particular was somehow culturally depraved uh, was and it, it was kind of sinking into a morass of its own materialism and greed, and the way to sort this out, the way to fix that is to to you know rediscover who we were before the West came in and ruined everything. It's a very appealing narrative, and the Japanese I think played an important role in um, popularizing it through their own propaganda and also their by example because the Japanese uh, during the war. Um, you know, the, and before the war, they they kind of propagated themselves. They they presented themselves as an Asian success story, um, and they were very Orientalist about it. So they constantly, you know, the Japanese spokesmen, not not all of them, of course, you had Japanese communists and and others who were skeptical about this and critical. Um, but the loudest voices in Japan, of course, were were proclaiming that this was because Japan was unique. Uh, Japan was in touch with its roots. Uh, Japan was the natural leader of Asia because it was still. Uh, still Asian uh, in ways that other other places have kind of lost touch. And this is an appealing idea. Um, and what I argue is that after the war, we did not simply see a continuation of a wartime discourse that puts the Japanese in the center of all this. In fact, the Japanese kind of fade from the picture pretty quickly when we talk about Asianism in the post-war. And that's because the Japanese, of course, made a mess of it. They made it. They, it was a disaster. They were hypocrites. They were liars. Um, and you know, I opened my book with the with the you know the, the kind of the standard narrative that we know about the Japanese uh, wartime Japanese, which was that they were liars, basically that that they had propagated this liberation and then they uh, you know it was a disaster. So the Japanese become a kind of an object lesson in you know how how not to do this. Um, but on the other hand, this this the appeals uh, in a more general sense of an Asia that is essentially different from the West, of an Asia that has been kind of robbed of its cultural essence and its original nature through Western uh, imperialism, uh, through Western modernity, remains a very appealing idea. Um, and if we, if we look at the period before World War II, um, there was, uh, where, the, where the West was very dominant, um, you know, this, this notion of pan-Asianism, there was, there was some ideas of pan-Asianism, um, but, uh, there was also, uh, among Indonesians, for example, there was, there was also doubt about the Indonesian, the, the value of the Indonesian, ancient Indonesian heritage. The Japanese really encouraged 
Indonesians to be more positive about their heritage. Um, and uh, in the end, the Japanese are rejected, right? The Japanese, uh, by, by, by the end of the war, the Japanese are, are rejected throughout Asia. Uh, their propaganda is rejected. They are seen as fascists. They are seen as oppressors, uh, hypocrites, um, hated maybe more than the West even because of their hypocrisy of having promised so much and actually giving so little. But the idea that, uh, that, Asia, that Asian difference uh, cultural, this kind of notion of a return to an Asian value system that is separate or different from that of the West in essential ways uh, remains appealing, uh, particularly to those for those on the on the right of the spectrum, uh, most obviously, right, conservatives who who are more than happy to embrace ideas. For example, this idea that communism is alien to Asia. Um, that uh, that um, uh, women's rights are alien to Asia. That that democracy is in the Western form is alien. Right? We can see that pretty clearly in this kind of Asian values discourse, which we see uh, arising, uh, particularly in the period uh, as Asia starts to recover from the war, and and in the in the later uh, 20th century. Um, but we also see it to some extent on the left, uh, and that's something I talk a bit about in the in the conclusion too, in more subtle ways. Um, so there is a rejection. Of, of racism, there's a rejection of, 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 uh, of imperialism, uh, Asian as well as Western. Um, but a kind of a romantic idea that, uh, you know, that there's something essentially different about Asia and Asian culture um, also retains to a certain extent a, 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 an appeal uh, across the political spectrum. And there's this, and we see this. Uh, I close the book with a quote, for example, from Meg- Megawati Sukarnoputri, who is Sukarno's uh, daughter, who later became uh, uh, president in the early 2000s, who talks about Indonesia as what she calls a gotong royong state, a state, a, a kind of a co-op, naturally cooperative state, a state in which uh, you have, uh, you don't have the kinds of um, class tensions, naturally speaking. Of course, you have class tensions, but these are not really native to us. Um, you have a kind of a cooperative nature in which people work together um, as a family, one big happy family. Uh, and they accept that there is a certain kind of hierarchy because everyone is a family and there's this kind of warmth to it. And this is how we have to you know, move forward as Indonesians. And some of this is, is a kind of a standard ingredient in all nationalisms, right? This notion of, of the nation as a family. But I think there is this added aspect, this Orientalist aspect which um, which the Japanese in a, in a you know in a, in a complicated way uh, kind of helped give an impetus, uh, and then we, the irony is that when we get to the late nineteen nine you know the late twentieth century, that we start to see the Japanese once again uh, Japanese spokesmen propagating uh, Asian values and this idea that the Japanese and Asians can work together in economic terms. Um, you know, in political terms, in special ways, because of this shared Asian heritage. Uh, and let's go back to Rabindranath Tagore and his writings. And, you know, so there's this kind of ironic return to, uh, 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 to you know, to these sources, uh, which th- these romantic sources, Tagore, by the way, is a complex figure. He was also very critical of Japanese imperialism. He was critical of nationalism to some extent, but he was also a romantic. He was a man of his times. Um, so his writings are, are, you know, are drawn upon by those in a, in a much more contemporary times for their own uh, for their own agenda. Um, so and this idea of Pan-Asianism as a way of, of, of you know, furthering cooperation 
in Asia, but also, you know, fundamentally in a kind of a counter-revolutionary way, you know, as, as an alternative to more radical ways of, of addressing Asia's problems. And in that sense, c- conservative, uh, romantic, um, and kind of calling upon a timelessness. Uh, it's ahistorical, right? It's this sort of idea of an essence um, that somehow can empower a, 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 a resurrection and a kind of a, a, a move uh, forward uh, without all of these kind of tensions uh, that, are, that are inherent to Western culture. This is a fundamentally, I would argue, a romantic, ahistorical way of understanding history, um, and, and, but still quite appealing. Thank you. Um, so um, we're coming to the end of the interview now, and I wanted to thank you again for taking so much time from your busy schedule uh, to talk with me today, Ethan. Um, so before we end, could you tell us what you're working on right now and what's next for you? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I have a couple of projects. One one um, that I mentioned uh, in the end of my book and the close of my book. Um, I uh, one of the one of the things that I actually worked on started working on in my PhD period, um, which I did not include in the book uh, because the book was getting really big anyway, and that kind of uh, that's a whole other story. The book is is you know a, a lot of pages. Um, I hope everyone will still uh, have, the, have the you know interest enough to read it. Um, uh, but. Um, it's it's a big story, right? And and I covered it from a lot of perspectives. And one of the perspectives that I ended up leaving out uh, was uh, the Japanese training of Indonesian paramilitaries uh, during the war. I do have a chapter on it in in my PhD thesis. Um, and this is also a whole kind of another kind of fascinating chapter um, in this encounter. Uh, you have uh, Japanese trainers and Indonesian trainees. Uh, and there's a whole history of that exchange. And it was, uh, in some ways, I think the area where the exchange between Japanese and Indonesians was the most intensive uh, in the longer term sense. The Japanese played a big role uh, in a, you know, putting it kind of simply in the formation of the Indonesian military, uh, in the kind of in the in the formation of a, of a military uh, ideology. And it's I certainly don't want to suggest that the Japanese that this is like a, a you know a, some an offshoot or a, or a Japanese production. It's a much more complicated story. Um, but we do have uh, Japanese. Uh, the Japanese mobilized a number of quite young and impressionable Indonesian youth um, as as kind of a pilot project for training of an eventual uh, Indonesian military force that would that would help to defend uh, the Japanese alongside them um, against the West. It never it never ended up performing that role because the war ended before that could happen. Um, but so you have a very interesting interaction there where uh, Indonesian young Indonesians were quite uh, strongly um, influenced by their Japanese trainers. It depended, of course, on the personality of the individual trainer. But some of these Japanese trainers were very motivated and very charismatic and very idealistic. And in a kind of, you had a sort of a microcosm there of, of in isolation from the rest of, of Indonesian society where the Japanese were able to um, have this kind of intensive interaction. And you ended up with a number of, of young Indonesians who were very um, taken with, uh, again, with these kind of Asianist values, um, also the machismo uh, and this, this uh, you know, this notion of, 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 uh, of a kind of a, uh, an Asian spirit. And um, 
this and and also, you know, it, it's more complicated than that. Of course, I don't want to suggest that that they were merely programmed by the Japanese and then off you go. In fact, many of these Indonesians were also ended up very disillusioned by the Japanese too before the war ended. Uh, when new uh, new groups of Japanese trainers uh, came who were less motivated than the original group, um, who were more colonial minded, uh, and so you had uh, also by the end of the war. Uh, I actually have a Twitter post about this, by the way, if you're interested in a little more, a little more uh, uh, depth on it. Um, I have it as my pinned tweet. If you look at if you look at me on Twitter, you can read this as my first tweet, which talks about um, the the, compl- the complexity of of, uh, of of the the complex um, uh, legacies of this particular military interaction. And the fact that already at the end of the occupation, these Jap- these Indonesian uh, trainees were very often disillusioned with the Japanese. And particularly when the Japanese decided, they, they surrendered and they decided to, to cooperate with the Dutch, the Indonesians were even further disillusioned. And uh, there was, so it's not a simple story of the, of the Japanese kind of, you know, uh, that these are puppets of the Japanese or something, far from it. But we see in the post-war period that there is a kind of a troubling link between particularly a lot of these trainees in the Indonesian army and uh, and and uh, the forces the, the forces of counter revolutionary forces in the Cold War who were who are uh, for example uh, they they end up uh, the people within the Indonesian military like Suharto is one of them who end up in kind of um, very anti communist uh, they are very patriarchal they are very uh, macho obviously and and uh, and really convinced that they are the true representatives of Indonesian nationalism and and the defenders of of the Indonesian nation um, who come gradually over time, come to see Sukarno and his his leaning to the left politically as a threat to them and to uh, Indonesian values as they see them and even to Asian values to some extent. Um, So uh, when we get to 1965, we have a dramatic of course, a, a coup attempt in Indonesia, which which is uh, uh, that's a long story. But if you you know if you know anything about 1965 in Indonesia, you know that there was a genocide, uh, which was led by the Indonesian army, um, and uh, it was uh, resulted in you know the death of something like one million uh, Indonesians who were uh, seen by the them uh, by by the army and and their collaborators as uh, as enemies of Indonesia as communists. Um, not all of them, of course, were uh, committed communists, but they were they were enemies in any case. Um, and uh, I'm interested in how. So, in other words, how this Japanese legacy played out in post-war Indonesia. So, I, I'm interested in writing, in that sense, a book, uh, uh, working on a book that that connects uh, that wartime experience to the post-war, asking not the usual conventional question of how did the Japanese contribute to the Indonesian nationalist struggle? Because that's all, it seems to be always the question that keeps coming back. Uh, But I'm more interested in how this Japanese experience um, influenced uh, Indonesian history in more, uh, in in, in more complex ways. Um, And how, uh, you know, this is not simply a question of, of the Japanese uh, influencing Indonesians, but how, and how did that uh, how did that play out in the Cold War when you end up, ironically enough, with the old enemies of each other, the Americans, the Japanese, the Dutch, uh, the British, the Australians are all uh, on the side of Suharto uh, and the Indonesian military uh, supporting them in overthrowing 
uh, Sukarno and his nationalist uh, state um, and replacing it with something you know much more beneficial to them. There's you know there there is there is room there in that story. We we tend to focus a lot on the American uh, to the extent that we know the story. We you know there's been a lot of work on the American role in that uh, in that development, and I'm interested in in this also the role of the Japanese as we move past the war. Um, and into this Sukarno period, what kind of relationship was there, um, and how did this wartime uh, interaction, you know, uh, how, how did that affect those those subsequent relations and the ultimate, you know, very tragic uh, uh, history of Indonesia in the 1960s? Thank you. That's really intriguing and fascinating, and um, I, I look forward to reading it. I mean, I'm not a scholar of Indonesia, but um, it, it it sounds to me like very very uh, novel and um, you know very interesting to think about. Um, the po- post-war Indonesian military and the um, uh, and and sort of Indonesia within the Cold War by connecting it to this uh, period uh, of the Japanese occupation and before, like the Japanese influence. I had one one more thing I wanted to mention before uh, for because you asked about projects um, and the the other one is uh, I, have, I have another project which is uh, a website and an edited volume which are called Global Histories of World War II. Um, and the idea here is that I was inspired by my experience uh, researching uh, the Japanese occupation experience. Um, I started to realize over time that you know Indonesians had a very distinctive understanding of what the world of what the war was about, uh, and in some ways recognized things about the war that it was a war between empires, that it was a war in some ways about empire, about the fate of empire. Um, and uh, it was a war uh, that, you know, in, in this sense, uh, from from this perspective of a of a society that was sort of caught in between in between the competing imperial powers, between the allies and the Axis, um, that they had a perspective uh, that was distinctive. And, uh, and and I sort of slowly dawned on me that this was, you know, in some ways a very enlightened um you know, broader understanding of the war than we usually get when we read uh, the conventional kind of nation-centered, uh, particularly Eurocentric uh, stories of the war. And um, that we could perhaps think in more in broader terms, I started to sort of thinking about the, the Japanese uh, invasion of China. And we think about Chinese resistance against the Japanese as, as an anti-colonial resistance. Um, and the, and the, the way that this, this, this huge conflict between Japan and China um, is also usually seen as kind of peripheral to our to our main story of World War II, whereas actually you could you could tell a different story where you see this Chinese uh, resistance against the Japanese and then the, the Japanese occupation of Southeast Asia as um, as from the perspective of those societies of the Chinese and, and other parts occupied areas areas caught in the middle uh, for British India for example what was the war what did the war mean for from the Indian perspective um, there was a lot of um, cynicism. Uh, about what the war meant, uh, but there was all, but there was also the idea of the war as a kind of an opportunity to to make a, a new world that was post colonial, uh, maybe even post Western. Um, so, uh, and it slowly dawned on me that I was not the only one, you know, looking at Indonesia, that I was not the only scholar who was seeing things that way and recognizing that, you know, narrating World War II from the perspective of everybody except the West or uh, uh, you know the, the the mass of the world's population. Would be would give us a new understanding of what the war really meant, in in terms of global history. Um, there's a there's a classic. Uh, I forgot his name uh, the top of my head, but there was a I can uh, I can't think of the name unfortunately. But the, there's an, uh, an Indian nationalist 
um, who is not that famous, uh, but he was asked um, in, in London in 1940, um, why are you why are you Indian nationalists not taking uh, the, Indi- the, the English side against the Nazis? Don't you think the Nazis are horrible? Look what they're doing. Uh, look how brutal and brutal and nasty they are. And uh, I'm sorry I that his name escaped me. I should have looked it up before this, but um, you can look it up. Perhaps you can Google the Google the, the what he said in response. He said, um, "You might as well ask a fish whether it would rather be boiled in uh, butter or in margarine." Um, you know that said that just kind of uh, the 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 cynicism, but also the the um, the, the kind of the insight uh, of that of that single response that's one line you know several words one sentence uh, that says so much and I think it's it's a whole experience of the war that we have not yet uh, really fully recognized or reckoned with I think there are movements in that direction very recently um, so I'm I'm setting up a website uh, with that title Global Histories World War II that's going to feature an edited volume which has work uh, on, on telling different stories from different parts of particularly Asia and Africa, uh, as well as the Middle East, uh, North, North, North Africa, the Middle East, uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, South Asia and East Asia um, and Turkey as well. Um, and uh, so the idea is to sort of narrate the Second World War uh, finally from the perspective of, of, uh, of, of the people in the territories in which a lot of that war happened, but who don't usually get, uh, they're not usually put in the position to tell the story themselves. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you completely that when we talk about World War II, we do not talk about places like Southeast Asia or South Asia, India, and so on, or even these other parts of the world like Africa and the Middle East, and that we, we sort of have like a much more limited perspective of World War II because of um, focusing on the North Atlantic or and and um, and, and, and 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 you know I mean I feel like uh, this 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 sounds like a really promising project, and I'm actually this summer I'm teaching a course on World War to in Asia and uh, and and the the, the 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 website that you mentioned really connects well with the aims of that course right yeah so I hope uh, uh, I hope I think I have actually the name the name for you the one who said that um, the uh, yeah so I mean I I, I I what I see in the in the in recent years just in the last decade or so is there's a lot more movement um, in that direction uh, among scholars around the world uh, which is very promising, you know, and I, and I hope that uh, that becomes really a, a, a common theme uh, around the world uh, in, in the way we look at the Second World War, which has such a, you know, there are so many different ways of seeing it when you get away from that nation centric and Eurocentric perspective. The name of the of the of the um, the Indian nationalist, by the way, is Krishna Menon, just so I can get that in there before uh, before we end. Thank you for mentioning that, um, and I hope I, I hope uh, others like uh, read read uh, follow your website and also read uh, your your work in the future. And I'm I'm really looking forward to following your work again in the future. Um, so this was an interview with Professor Ethan Mark about his book Japan's Occupation of Java and the Second World War: A Transnational History, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2018. Um, so thank you, Ethan. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.